Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's answer to a reporter's question today in a press conference with Japan's Prime Minister that yes, if China attacked Taiwan, the US would respond militarily, which some have interpreted as a gap. But Biden could hardly have said no that the U.S. would let China go ahead and invade Taiwan just as Putin has invaded Ukraine. Joining us is an expert on Taiwan, Shelley Rigger, a senior fellow at the Asia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a professor of East Asian politics at Davison College. She's the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, as well as two books on Taiwan's domestic politics, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and From Opposition to Power, Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. And we will discuss the furious response from China's communist government and Beijing's concerns about the meeting underway of the Quad leaders of the US, Japan, India, and Australia, which China originally dismissed, but now sees the Quad as a threat. Then we'll look into another meeting in Tokyo apart from the Quad, and that is Biden's meeting with leaders of Japan, India, and 10 other countries in a high-profile launch of a new Indo-Pacific economic framework, the IPEF, IPEF. Joining us is Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect and the Ida and Myatt Kirsten Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. His books include The Stakes, 2020 and the Survival of American Democracy, and his latest, Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal, and the Struggle to Save Democracy. And we'll discuss his article at the American Prospect, Biden's New Trade Deal, Less Than Meets the Eye. We'll also investigate another far-right court ruling that could go a long way towards Stephen Bannon's goal of deconstructing the administrative state, and discuss Robert Kuttner's other article at the Prospect, another sweeping far-right court ruling following the practice of ignoring precedent an appellate ruling seeks to destroy consumer and investor protection. Then finally, we'll look into the scathing 400-page report into the Southern Baptist Convention's governing body's handling of sexual abuse by clergy that is an indictment of a small cadre of men who controlled how America's second-largest faith failed to respond to victims, protected abusers, and covered up a growing problem within its 47,000 churches. Joining us is Anthea Butler, the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Shelley Rigger, who's a senior fellow 
in the Asia program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a professor of East Asian politics at Davidson College. She's the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, as well as two books on Taiwan's domestic politics, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and From Opposition to Power, Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shelley Rigger. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, President Biden was asked by a reporter today in a press conference in, in Japan with Japan's prime minister that, you know, the U.S. is not engaged militarily in Ukraine. But if China were to attack Taiwan, would the America get in, engaged militarily? And Biden said yes. Now, people think it's a kind of a gaffe. Frankly, he couldn't have said no, surely. I mean, <laughs> so how is this a big deal? Because the, the the previous policy was called strategic ambiguity, but I'm not sure. Did anybody believe that the U.S. would sit back on its hands and do nothing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not a big deal. And whether it's a gaffe or, you know, something between a gaffe and an intentional change of policy, you know, maybe a, a message or an indication, you know, others in the uh, White House staff kind of walked it back as they have in the past when President Biden has said similar things. But I think, you know, the bottom line is that the U.S. is at least willing to defend Taiwan. This is the position that U.S. governments have taken for many decades. And I think President Biden is not saying anything new the what might be perceived as something new is the idea that you know this is a kind of unconditional guarantee and i think that's what i would be very cautious if i were in taiwan about interpreting this statement as you know carte blanche to do whatever i wanted um but i you know i think there's a lot of pressure right now on the US and other governments to make clear what the limits of their tolerance might be with respect to China's, um, you know, more assertive posture in the world. And I think he was really speaking to that more than to a change in US policy. And China's foreign ministry spokesman insisted that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China's territory. There's no room for compromise or concession. The Taiwan question and the Ukraine issue are fundamentally different. To compare those two is absurd. We once again urge the U.S. to abide by the one China principle. Well, Biden said that, didn't he, in these same remarks? He said uh, we're abiding by the one China principle. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the PRC message discipline is much tighter <laughs> than the U.S. message discipline. Their position, because the PRC has a different kind of political system from the U.S., but I think the statement from the foreign ministry spokesman is absolutely consistent with uh, many repetitions of that same message. I think for the U.S., a one-China policy means that uh, we are interested in a peaceful resolution to the issues between uh, mainland China and Taiwan, not that we are on board with the PRC's definition of Taiwan's relationship to it. Well, President Biden did say that China's already flirting with danger right now by flying so close and all the maneuvers that they are undertaking. So 
I mean, that's an acknowledgement, right, of the China's being more and more aggressive, and uh, at least in terms of military signals. I mean, China's upset that they can't invade the country, but what's their alternative? I mean, what are they offering here in terms of reunification? They say it's their territory, and they get upset because Biden said, well, you can't invade it like the Russians just invaded Ukraine, that we will defend Taiwan. So what is their alternative in terms of having claimed it as a part of China? What are they offering? Mainland China has had this position that Taiwan is part of China and that the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is the sole legal government that represents China in the world for decades. And yet they have lived with the reality that Taiwan is governed by a <laughs> what they call the Taiwan authorities, right? People in Taiwan who make decisions for Taiwan, who collect taxes and who operate a military and are not under the control or jurisdiction of the Beijing government. And they've, they've tolerated that situation for a long time. They would like to change that situation so that the two sides of the Taiwan Strait can be under the same state, whether that is exactly the same as the PRC state or whether there's some other option for, you know, bringing the two under an umbrella together, exactly what the PRC is trying to achieve and what form of unification or, you know, shared governance or shared sovereignty or um, merged sovereignty they might be able to tolerate with Taiwan is a, an open question. The, the goal of unification is a pretty, a pretty vague goal. And what we know is that the PRC would like to encourage Taiwan to accept some kind of unification arrangement. And failing that, they hold out the option of coercing or even forcing Taiwan into such an arrangement. But I don't think that that is their uh, preference, that is to say some kind of non-voluntary unification is not what they hope to see. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of words thrown around in the, the hope of making sure that Taiwan doesn't try to escape and, you know, like end all possibility of unification. So, you know, I, I think, I don't think this is a, a matter that is going to be resolved imminently. I don't think that the PRC's reiteration of its longstanding preferences and, and formulas means that uh, something has fundamentally changed on that side. And again, I'm speaking with Shelley Rigger, who's a senior fellow in the Asia program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a professor of East Asian politics at Davidson College. She is the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, as well as two books on Taiwan's domestic politics, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and From Opposition to Power, Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. Well, clearly the model of Hong Kong is not reassuring to Taiwan. I mean, the British handed back Hong Kong and the Chinese promised two systems, one country, and they just quashed democracy. And now they have puppets running the whole place. So that I imagine in Taiwan, they, they don't believe 
that China would allow them to maintain the status quo with democracy and, and freedom? Right. There is a lot of skepticism in Taiwan about uh, what the PRC actually has in mind for for its future. And the crisis in Hong Kong and the sort of uh, collapse of the one country, two systems, protections for Hong Kong's separate status and, and its continued social, economic and, and political uh, autonomy has certainly reinforced the idea in Taiwan that um, the offers that the PRC government has made to date are not ones that uh, Taiwan should be eager to sign on to. But that doesn't mean that, you know, in the long run, there might not be some other, um, you know, that something else could emerge. So I, I kind of want to discourage people from imagining that um, in the near term, we have to have either, you know, full unification or full separation, permanent separation, what we might call Taiwan independence. You know, this status quo that we're in, this kind of uh, separate status, undecided future has been in existence for almost 80 years. And so I'm not uh, convinced that it cannot continue at least a while longer. And there's a third possibility you didn't mention, Shelley, and that is World War III. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm definitely not, uh, I'm not going to go there. Right, but that's implied in China's upset with what Biden said, which is he'll defend the, the country militarily if they try to pull a Putin and invade the island. You know, I think a lot of what uh, the PRC is saying is um, that it really, it. I think the PRC leadership wants the United States not to encourage Taiwan to take an action that might force Beijing to engage militarily. I think uh, Beijing is not looking for a fight, but they fear that the U.S. and Taiwan could blunder into a situation where they would be in a fight. So, you know, I think what their what their statement is saying is, you know, hey, U.S., don't give the Taiwanese any ideas about some kind of unconditional guarantee of their security, no matter what they do. And I think the reassertion of the U.S. one China policy is about saying, right, yes, you know, this is not a um, this is not a unilateral or, or unconditional guarantee of security, no matter what Taiwan does. But it is a a, a sort of pointing out that right now the threat doesn't seem to be coming from Taiwan. Right now, the threat seems to be coming from these ambitious uh, large states like Russia and the PRC. And so, you know, the U.S. needs to be clear that just because it did not and, and will not send troops into Ukraine does not mean that it is unwilling to defend any of its partners anywhere, um, including Taiwan. So let's turn to another issue. Of course, the meeting in Japan is also about the Quad, the meeting of the heads of the United States, uh, India, Australia, and Japan. And initially, China was fairly, you know, 
casual, if that's not the best description about it. They they didn't make a big deal when the quad was first announced. But now, with this meeting in uh, Tokyo, they seem to see now that the quad is a, as a threat against them. You know, I think anything that the U.S. does with partners and allies in East Asia is going to be perceived as a threat uh, by the PRC. That's just kind of <laughs> inevitable um, because the PRC leadership f- truly believes that the U.S. has an interest and an intention to contain China and to encircle China. So I think what the U.S. government tries to do is to go about the defense of its own interests and the interests of its allies and partners and, you know, tries not to um, exacerbate those concerns, but is also not going to stop engaging with partners and allies in order to um, spare Beijing's feelings or reduce the, the the feeling of threat in the PRC. So, you know, um, I don't think they've, I don't think Beijing has ever liked the quad, but, you know, they don't have to, they don't have to speak out about everything right when they have the thought. Uh, they can save their objections for a moment when they may have more impact. So, it, you know, I think the idea that they're, they weren't talking before, they're talking now, so their position must have changed, is perhaps um, not taking uh, into account the possibility that they are doing strategic communication and they've, they're using this opportunity to critique the quad to respond to other things. Um, and also, you know, the, the PRC position on, on Ukraine is that the U.S. and its allies in Europe have, are responsible for the Ukraine invasion because they pushed Putin into a corner with their alliance building and the NATO expansion. So, you know, sort of pulling that out now, pulling out the quad now and sort of suggesting that maybe the U.S. and its allies in the Pacific are doing the same thing you know, there's a kind of symmetry there that doesn't rely on this being a new position, but just relies on this being a new moment to make the same point. So, Shelley Rigger, just in the last couple of minutes then, let's touch on the the other aspect of this meeting, uh, these meetings in Tokyo, where President Biden announced today 12 countries are joining the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF, I don't know, mm-hmm. IPEF or whatever, I don't yeah, know, yeah. whatever it's going to be called. But the 12 countries are Australia, Brunei, India, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, New, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam, and the US, which together they represent 40% of the world's GDP. So is this a big deal, do you think? I think it is a big deal. And I think it's interesting that Taiwan is not on the list that you just read, right? So, you know, the idea that the U.S. is just doing everything with Taiwan all the time without any regard for other considerations is belied by the announcement. And, you know, it's not just implicit, it's also it was made explicitly that Taiwan would not be included in the Indo-Pacific economic framework. So, I think what the U.S. is trying to do here is it's trying to create a, ideally, a high-quality 
trade network in East and Southeast and South Asia. And the, the fact that it does not include Taiwan is suggestive of some uh, limitations or, you know, a degree of caution not to politicize something that is, that not to create the impression or not to reinforce Beijing's concern that the purpose of this agreement is to exclude or um, marginalize the PRC. The PRC is not the only major economy in the region, <laughs> right, that's not included. Right. So that, so it's not the same as the TPP. No, it's not exactly the same as the TPP, although, um, you know, I, I think the TPP might have been a good framework for um, this kind of cooperation. And it's regrettable that um, the U.S. didn't seize that opportunity when it could. But, you know, these are different countries from the TPP because TPP oh. was uh, included many countries in uh, South America as well as East Asia. Sure. Well, Shelley Rigger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Shelley Rigger, who's a senior fellow in the Asia program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a professor of East Asian politics at Davidson College. She's the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse, as well as two books on Taiwan's domestic politics, Politics in Taiwan, Voting for Democracy, and From Opposition to Power, Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into another meeting in Tokyo apart from the Quad, and that is Biden's meeting with the leaders of Japan, India, and 10 other countries in a high-profile launch of the new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the IPEF. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and the Ida and Myers Kirstein Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. His books include The Stakes, 2020, and The Survival of American Democracy. And his latest book just out is Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal, and The Struggle to Save Democracy. And he has an article of the American Prospect, another sweeping far-right court ruling following the practice of ignoring precedent. An appellate ruling seeks to destroy consumer and investor protection. And another article, Biden's new trade deal, less than meets the eye. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Kuttner. Always a pleasure, Ian. Well, thanks, uh, Robert. And let's start with Biden's meeting in Japan at which, of course, she's meeting with the Quad, which has upset the Chinese and a lot of attention. We've just covered it in the earlier segment on Biden's answering a question that, indeed, if China were to invade Taiwan, the U.S. would respond militarily. 
and frankly, I, th- I he wasn't about to say no. We'd do nothing. I don't, I don't know what the, all the fuss about that is. But the other thing that's happening in the, along with the Quad meeting is, of course, Biden's launch of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the IPEF. So you're writing about it in terms of Biden's new trade deal, less than meets the eye. So IPEF is that how you pronounce it? Not a friendly. I, term. I have no idea. Yeah, probably IPEF. Right. So what's the chance of, of that being anything like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which it seems like well, a poor cousin? Yeah, so this is, this is a little bit complicated. So you, you had uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is sort of the last gasp of the corporate free traders that, that used a trade deal as a deregulation deal, tried to lock into trade law uh, all kinds of benefits for the pharma companies and all kinds of benefits for big tech and using trade to make it harder for signatories to a trade deal, in this case the TPP, to regulate capitalism. So Trump, being uh, anti-trade, kills that. One of the virtuous things that Trump did, there aren't very many, but changing the trajectory of trade policy was one of the few. And Biden, to his credit, uh, you know, has reversed this whole traditional free trade stuff because he actually believes in industrial policy. He believes in reshoring production. But there's a lot of pressure to do some kind of a trade deal. So this IPEF deal um, is a kind of hybrid where it's sort of a la carte. It's got four so-called pillars and the 12 uh, other countries that have indicated that they're interested in this might go along with one pillar, but not another pillar. And one of them is let's fix supply chains. And another is let's have a digital trade deal. And another is let's, let's do green energy. But the, the problem with it is that um, even though they announced this with, with a great deal of fanfare, all the details remain to be filled in and all of the difficult bargaining is ahead and a lot of the difficult bargaining is not just between the United States and other countries, but it's within the U.S. government because you've got the Commerce Department that basically likes TPP and wants to have uh, this new deal be as close to TPP as possible. Then you've got the U.S. trade rep, um, Catherine Tai, who's much more of a hardliner on China. And you've also got this nasty little problem that five of the countries who are going to be part of this process – are terrible on labor rights, they're terrible on human rights, and are you going to admit them into this deal uh, even though, you know, uh, <laughs> they, they ban unions or they ban uh, homosexuality or uh, God knows what? And this is a Vietnam, which is a dictatorship, and it's Brunei, which is a dictatorship, and it's the Philippines that bashes free trade unions. And so... It's uh, Potemkin Village would be an unkind characterization, but I think there really is less than meets the eye. And uh, not to pile a cliche on top of a cliche, but as I write in the prospect today, the devil is in the details, and we don't know yet what the details are. Well, the TPP was also supposedly about organizing the neighborhood so that China would have to pay by the rules that were set down as opposed to setting their own rules. Yeah, but it, ne- it never was that. That was a kind of a... Obama kind of tacked that on after the fact 
when public opinion started worrying about China. It was really a traditional corporate free trade deal, and there was really nothing in it that would have contained China. Right, but in this new iteration, IPEF or IPEF or whatever, yeah. it has provisions, anti-money laundering and anti-bribery measures. And now China's doing pretty well in the bribery department. They just bribed this crooked prime minister in the Solomons uh, to put a Navy base in there, which has freaked out the US and, and Australia. And of course, now that Marcos is, has been elected in the Philippines, uh, he's totally uh, in the pocket of the Chinese and likely to be, accept their largesse. Perfectly- and the Philippines is one of the countries that's part of this deal. So it's, it's right. rather incoherent, both right. as economic policy and as geopolitics. Right. Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out here. How would you be able to get Duterte and, Phil- and Marcos to change their ways? Well, you probably wouldn't because there aren't enough carrots. I mean... What some of these countries would like is tariff-free access to the United States. They're not going to get that if Biden is going in the opposite direction on industrial policy, one of the good things that he's doing. And so it was an effort to kind of satisfy the demand for some kind of a trade deal and maybe get some decent environmental standards and some progress on supply chains uh, along the way. So it's it's pretty much of a nothing burger, in, in, in my view. Well, let's talk about your other article then. Another sweeping far-right court ruling following the practice of ignoring precedent and appellate ruling seeks to destroy consumer and investor protection. Now, this one is really alarming because it's pretty clear that this new Supreme Court, along with killing Roe v. Wade uh, and Casey, they also seem to be following Stephen Bannon's playbook of deconstructing the administrative state. They've already gone after yeah. OSHA. They're going after yep. the EPA so that they won't be able to regulate the air and the water. So, well, this nasty little and the CDC, is kind by of a the sleeper. way. So, yeah, I'm surprised how little publicity this has gotten because it's a it's a very very big deal. So this is the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. That's the Deep South. Uh, it's one of the used to be actually one of the more liberal circuits back in the civil rights era, but it's now one of the most right-wing circuits. And you hit the nail on the head. It, 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 the whole logic of this decision is to really weaken the administrative state. So here's the essence of the decision: um, the Securities and Exchange Commission, like every other major regulatory agency uses hearing examiners, and hearing examiners about 20 years ago got a title elevation, and they're now called administrative law judges. And they're basically fact finders, and they have the authority to issue penalties. In most cases, these penalties are fines, but in some cases, they can bar people from the securities business. So in this particular case, a hedge fund guy named George Jarkazy uh, fraudulently, uh, according to the SEC, uh, misled investors as to the risks and as to the nature of the audit, and uh, about $28 million was involved. And so the SEC did an investigation, and they present the results to this administrative law judge, and he finds Jarkasy about a million bucks and bars him from most aspects of the securities business. 
And so Jargosy appeals, and he appeals on constitutional grounds that uh, under Article 7 of the Constitution, everybody has the right to a jury trial. And the delegation of authority to the Securities and Exchange Commission and 30 other regulatory agencies to use administrative law judges to make these decisions is unconstitutional. And uh, the court, the majority ruling, uh, finds that indeed, not only was the SEC acting in improperly, uh, improperly, but Congress's delegation of authority to the SEC to uh, do this sort of thing is on its face unconstitutional. And um, there are about 2,000 administrative law judges across the government, about double the number of U.S. district court judges. And, uh, you know, they do everything from the kind of thing that the SEC does to Social Security administrative law judges adjudicating if you have a complaint about your benefits. It's all kinds of stuff. And the risk is that this is very much in line with, as you indicated, the rights critique of the administrative state. And you can imagine the, the Roberts Court just saying, yeah, right, and, and upholding this, in which case it becomes much more difficult for all of the regulatory agencies to function because, uh, you know, there, there just is not the apparatus to give everybody who comes before these agencies uh, a jury trial. So that's why this is so um, malicious and so alarming. Well, but it's a part of this idea to, as I mentioned, they've gone after OSHA and gone after the CDC and the, and the EPA. And basically, this will just eviscerate the expertise within the government. And these judges and administrative law judges in these 30 different agencies, there, as you mentioned, there are 2,000 of them, they have expertise with these cases, right? So right. that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about essentially, I mean, this is, a, this is a gift to the plutocracy, isn't it? Yeah, and there, there's just to, to give you a sense of the nastiness of this ruling, uh, criminal defense, defendants have an absolute right to a jury trial. But as long as there's been a constitution, the rules governing civil suits and SEC enforcement suits are civil suits are not criminal proceedings. And the Supreme Court has long held that jury trials are not required by the Constitution in civil proceedings, where the United States government sues in its sovereign capacity to enforce public rights created by Congress. And so this is a radical reinterpretation, I would say even more than Roe, in that um, Roe when, when Roe v. Wade is, is handed down by the Supreme Court in whatever it was, 1972, I think, the, the justices made new law. Uh, so you could argue that, well, Roe made new law, and now we're just going to revert the law to what it was before 1972. In this case, it's always been the law that the absolute right to a jury trial is limited to criminal defendants, not in civil suits. And uh, so the courts are just getting more and more extreme. They're making up stuff. <clears throat> they have no respect for precedent. And it, it's just appalling. Well, the Fifth Circuit, one of the more outrageous, 
acts was just a, a week or so ago, there was a Texas law that was blocked, which they reinstated, which mm. basically means that you know people like Elon Musk uh, taking over Twitter will have no restrictions on him. They make it illegal for any social platform, social media platform, to ban, remove, or deplatform anybody. And, you know, this is the, <laughs> as weak as the oversight is from Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, etc. They just want to take it away altogether uh, in the name of yeah. uh, being, you know, against the woke movement, uh, which is, a, of course, a mythical movement in itself. So, And, you know, the, so, I mean, I have this book on the, 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 you know, the incredible precipice that we're on the edge of and the importance of... Uh, of not letting uh, the MAGA Republicans take over the entire government. Even if we get lucky and there's enough organizing so that we hold at least one House of Congress and and uh, uh, Trump or one of his clones doesn't become president in 2024, it's going to be a long time before we get back to courts. I mean, you need you really need eight years of a, of a Democratic administration before you can start getting back the courts, some of these some of these people have to die. They're getting old. Uh, they will die. We can reappoint, uh, you know, moderately progressive people. But the but the legacy of the far right courts is just going to haunt us for a long time. And the judge who came down with this decision, Judge Elrod. As I said in the piece, I wish I could report that she's a Trump judge. She's a George W. Bush judge. So that, you know, this goes all the way back to Reagan. It really goes all the way back to Nixon, the the, the right-wing takeover of the courts. And if if Democrats had not walked away from their traditional role of defending working families and had not gotten into bed with Wall Street, you know, you would not have had all these far-right presidents appointing these far-right judges. Well... It would seem to me that the Fifth Circuit doesn't really care about the Seventh Amendment, do they? I mean, this is, isn't this just a way to empower the plutocracy for the one of a better description? In yeah, other words, it's, it's a way to eviscerate the ability of the SEC, which finally is doing its job after, after being comatose for three or four decades. And uh, its job is to uh, go after the pl plutocracy when the plutocracy commits fraud and to protect the rights of consumers and investors. So the irony here is just when you're getting some decent regulators at the SEC, at the Federal Trade Commission, at the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department, at OSHA, at EPA, um, you've got this new right-wing assault through the courts uh, on the ability of the government to protect workers and consumers. And to take us back to the 1920s before FTR, right? Or even right. further back. <laughs> right. Well, I thank you for joining us. I, I appreciate sure. it. Sure. And uh, I wish I wish I had a happier story. Well, no, but, but I, I, I do have a happy story in this in this new book, which I urge your listeners to get a hold of. Going big, uh, all is not lost, and it really depends on whether we get out and organize. And even though we may not like a lot of stuff that Biden did, uh, a lot of that's not his fault. It's Joe Manchin's fault. And the stakes are just too high to be purists on, on whether uh, Biden and the Democrats are radical enough for our taste. We've just got to keep the MAGA maggots from taking power. Well, thank you again for joining us here today. Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and the Ida and Maya Kirsten Chair. 
at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee and, a 20 year, and for 20 years wrote a column at the Business Week, and his books include The Stakes, 2020, and The Survival of American Democracy. And his latest book just out is Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal, and The Struggle to Save Democracy. And he has a couple of articles at the American Prospect, another sweeping far-right court ruling following the practice of ignoring precedent an appellate ruling seeks to destroy consumer investor protection, and the other, Biden's new trade deal, less than meets the eye. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into the scathing 400-page report into the Southern Baptist Convention's governing body's handling of sexual abuse by clergy. The grocer, though we have fun, tax collectors getting closer, still we have fun. There's nothing surer, the rich get rich and the poor get poorer. In the meantime, in between time, ain't we got fun? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anthea Butler, who is a Geraldine R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anthea Butler. Nice to be here again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Anthea. And on Sunday at scathing 288-page investigative report prepared by an independent outfit that looked into the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is America's largest Protestant denomination and second largest church in America. The executive committee did not want this report, but they were forced to do it by 15,000 members, and the victims found that in meeting with the executive committee, the, the time and time again they were met with resistance, stonewalling, and even outright hostility from some of the leaders. So this is a pretty damning report, and of course we're pretty familiar with the Catholic Church, which is a hierarchical organization, unlike the Baptist Convention. So what do you make of this, uh, Anthea? Is it as really bad as it looks? Absolutely. It's actually worse than it looks because I'm pretty sure there were probably other things that may not have made it into the report. But I think it's important for your listeners to understand that although this uh, Baptist may be very different than Catholics in terms of how they have their hierarchy organized, that the same kind of hierarchical practices of protecting people who are perpetrators, who are sexual offenders, and protecting the, the um, both the legal position of the church and the financial position of the church is important to all of these religious organizations. So while someone asked me yesterday, was I surprised by the report? I was like, I am never surprised to the depths in which religious leaders will go in order to protect both perpetrators to not pay those who are um, victims of sexual abuse and violence within churches, and to also maintain the reputation of the church by doing so. And so what I think we see from the Southern Baptists is the same kind of report 
that we saw that started in the 90s with the Catholic Church but came to a culmination with Spotlight, um, the investigation by the Boston Globe that happened. This is, um, as uh, Russell Moore put it, who was part of this group and basically didn't answer a couple of letters himself, uh, he called it the Baptist Armageddon. And I think that that's an apt description of it. Well, one of the people that's featured in here is, of course, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Johnny Hunt. Um, and they go into quite detail where he abused another pastor's wife during a beach vacation in 2010. He proceeded to pull her shorts down, turn her over and stare at her backside and made sexual remarks about her body and things he imagined about her. And then he pinned her onto a couch and pulled up her shirt and sexually battered her with his hands. And then sometime later, he resigned his post. But the report also details how Hunt arranged a few days after this abuse uh, between him. He met with him, the, wo the woman, and her husband at a counseling session where Hunt reportedly admitted to touching the victim inappropriately but said, thank God I didn't consummate the relationship. My God. <laughs> it's just horrible. I mean, first of all, it is a rape. And the fact that they are not talking about it that way, it doesn't matter if it's technical rape, digital rape, whatever. It's rape, okay? So that's first off. Second is the fact that this is the kind of evangelical thinking that happens. They think that anything that happens with a penis constitutes rape. And then anything else is just, you know, harmless touching or something like that. And I think that gets to the first, the naivete of this man, and second, the perfidity of him. And and I want to use that strong of a word because basically, you know, he gets to go off and still get a pension or whatever it is. And this woman and her husband have to deal with this violation. And so this is the kind of thing that the Southern Baptist wanted to hide. And, and let me be clear here, because I think people who are listening need to understand this. These are the people who talk about morality all the time. These are the people who don't want you to have premarital sex. These are the people who don't want you to have an abortion. These are the people who talk a lot about God and how you're supposed to live. And this is what their leadership is doing. They are disgusting. And again, I'm speaking with Anthea Butler, who's a Gerald R. Siegel Professor in American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Well, apparently they kept a list of 703 offenders, which they kept secret from the Southern Baptist Convention's 15 million members. And these are lists of predators and pedophiles. And yeah. it, th there's a sort of reminiscent somewhat of the Catholic Church business of just moving them from one church to another without informing anybody of who these oh, people are and what they've been up to. Exactly. And and it, it, even worse, you know, basically allowing them to move around. I read, I think in the description, if I'm not mistaken, that there was someone who had molested his own children and had been prosecuted for that, but was on this list and had not been taken down. His own children. So, I mean, you know, the way in which they are, they've practiced all of this is the same thing, really, basically, as the Catholic Church. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of difference. The Catholic Church got a lot of high-powered lawyers. The interesting thing is that, you know, some of these lawyers who were involved with this also worked for the church. And so it even goes even deeper. You know, the Catholic Church has canon law 
to, you know, hold them in one spot, right? That they could say, well, canon law is over, you know, the rest of the law of the land, which is not true. But, you know, for the Southern Baptists, they don't even have that. So I think, you know, what we're seeing here is, you know, just the beginnings of a massive lawsuit. I would be thinking about a class action against the church. That's first of all, if I'm, you know, a lawyer that's dealing with this, some of the lawyers that have dealt with the Catholic church should probably be on this like yesterday. And I, you know, I have not as of yet seen a statement from the Southern Baptists because I'm sure that they're reeling and trying to figure out what the hell they're going to say. But I happen to know that you are in Southern California, and I hope that you're going to be down in Anaheim when they come for their meeting next month. Right. They're in Anaheim. Uh, I think it's uh, on the 14th of June. It's a two-day annual meeting. Apparently, a part of the kind of delay and cover-up, and apparently they're quite abusive towards uh, some of the victims and survivors. Uh, they were met with stonewalling and often outright hostility, according to this report. But one of the ways that it was covered up was by some of the members, and particularly a long-time Southern Baptist Convention leader, August Boto. Yes. He, de- he decried these allegations as a satanic scheme to completely distract us from evangelism. So I know. Pr- it's ridiculous, pr- isn't it? But it's, it's par for the course. And it's par for the course because this language of demonic and, you know, predator and groomer, this is the same language that, you know, right-wingers and evangelicals are using right now to vilify people. And so here they are in the midst of this, hiding people who have abused, sexually abused, both men and women. We need to understand this. It's not just women. It's men and children. They are using the same kind of language when they themselves have protected these people. And I think that's really important to understand that the use of this language right now is coming out of church realms where they are already protecting people who are doing this kind of thing. So what is this, though, given that we we mentioned it a few times, Anthea, that there's a sort of commonality, at least echoes of the Catholic abuse, which is ongoing, and we've heard about it for years and years, and it's been absolutely sordid how they've dragged their heels and protected the predators and abused the victims. Uh, mm-hmm. And now they're paying out enormously and have been for some time. I don't know whether the Southern Baptist Convention is going to start paying out. Uh, you mentioned that the lawyers might be circling the wagons there. Oh, but, I'm sure they are. I would be. But what what is it, though, about these men of God that indulge in these horrible practices? What? Why is the similarities between, I mean, these, it's the second largest church in the country and, and the biggest Protestant faith, and yet, you know, it's odd, obviously it's not that they're different from the Catholics and they don't particularly get along, but my God, the one thing they seem to have in common is this predilection for abuse. You must have looked at it over the years. I, I have it, I could say very succinctly, it's male-dominated leadership. It is patriarchal norms. It is the fact that they believe in complementarianism, which is there are separate roles for men and separate roles for women. They don't allow women to be in the pulpit to preach. They think of women as helpmeets and not as equals. And so one of the things that's about this is that they see women in a certain way throughout the church, and they are not part and partial of the leadership. You have to understand that all of this leadership that you're seeing that has obfuscated this has been male. 
It's all men. And so I think what's really important for people to understand is like, there's not women who are weighing in on this. It's all men weighing in on, well, we got to protect men. You know, we have to protect them. We have to protect male headship. This is part of their belief system. This is part of evangelical belief system. And so here, the problem that is the same problem in the Catholic Church is that when you have men over these kinds of issues, and I'm not saying all men are like this, but when you have a male-dominated church, a male-led patriarchy where men are at the top and women and children are beneath them, then it doesn't matter what you do to them. It doesn't matter. Because you are the legal and religious headship of the church. And that kind of thinking leads to abuse. Well, there's a kind of handmaid's tale quality to this, isn't there? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you can tell women what to do and who not to sleep with and not to have sex before marriage, but then you can defile everyone. I mean, you know, I know people like to use handmaid's tale for all of this, but this is going on long before Margaret's book. Mm-hmm. Gone on long before his book. And so I think we have to place this into certain kinds of ideas and, um, you know, structures and theologies of Christianity that have developed over time. And that, you know, I'm a historian. I will say that this is not the way of the structure was the early church to begin with. But when Protestantism came to the fore and you allow men to be in the lead and they took this from the Catholic Church, then this is what you get. Right, but Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, said, you know, what I did was fiction, but now it looks like fact, given what this Supreme Court is up to with uh, well, returning yeah. Rowan Casey. Well, nobody, this this is why I don't like to use Margaret Atwood. You know why? Because basically it's like, that's a fictional book. The reality is much worse. And, and there's a problem. Because the reality is much worse, because what the reality is going to be is not just the fact that Roe will be backed up. The reality is, is that they're not going to stop there. It's not just about, you know, women not being able to get abortions and, and pregnancies not being taken care of and this dystopian vision. It's also a vision in which gay marriages will be rescinded. It also could possibly be a vision in which, you know, civil rights are eroded for everyone. And so this is just the tip of the iceberg. And I don't mean this for fear, but I think that that's a that's a very big ch- chance that this could happen. Well, it means that these kind of medieval skulls like Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alita will literally be in our bedrooms, right? I mean, that's yeah. the ultimate invasion of privacy. They're going to go after privacy itself, aren't they? Exactly. And they will be able to peep into your bedroom and see what you're doing. So if you think back about all the sodomy laws that were taken down and everything, I was going to try to tell you what kind of sex you should have, who you should have it with, when you should have it, and even when your period is happening. Because they can track that with track with app trackers. Already been doing it with immigrants. Well, they already have vigilante rules in Texas. So yeah. how long before we'll have this kind of dystopian situation in this country where in, in these red states, young women will be going to Greyhound bus stations and will be accosted by vigilantes checking their papers just like the Gestapo. And I don't think not long. I mean, you know, in Oklahoma right now, you could have sex and not even know if the sperm hits the egg and you could be, you know, put in jail. Just think about it. You you know, you have sex with somebody and they say, oh, she might be pregnant. She's thinking about getting an abortion. I ain't gone there yet. Don't even know. And you could be, you, you could be accosted for that. I mean, just the way that that law is set up. So I think it's really important for people to understand the gravity of where we are right now and that, 
you know, this is this is part of the erosion of democracy. The erosion of your personal rights and these kind of religious beliefs is an erosion of democracy also. Well, but it's also clear that with the direction the Supreme Court is taking is from this report that we just got on Sunday from the Southern Baptist Convention, which again, they didn't want to have done. It was forced, forced on them and it's absolutely damning. Is again that these people in power who, you know, write the laws, they don't apply to them, right? No, not at all. Not at all. And and I think that's what people also need to understand is that the laws may not apply to them because they're always going to have places to go get an abortion or to take care of business or to do whatever because they have money and they have protections. And that is the point. This is not for people who are indigent or don't have the kinds of funds that they have. So just in the last couple of minutes, Anthea, what do you think will happen at this two-day meeting in Anaheim beginning on June the 14th uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention? Will Honestly, chaos. I mean, I think it's going to be free for all because this is going to be, you know, part of what will happen is somewhat of what happened in Nashville last year, which was essentially a struggle for power. And moderates won out. This time, I think it's going to be even more pitched battle because it depends on what is said before they get to the meeting. And I think that will be crucial about how they're going to deal with this in the press. And I don't know how they'll deal with it. Um, if they're smart, they need to have a big statement of contrition. They need to have some big kind of apology. They need to start putting some practices into place. But I think that the people who voted for this are going to hold them to account. And I think it will be a very contentious meeting. I don't see it not being a contentious meeting. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is that these people who tell us how to live our lives and preach morality and go on television and radio and rant and scream and threaten and with all this fire and brimstone about sin and the Satan and the devil, they're actually engaged in the very... <laughs> the very things that they're against. That's right. Well, I thank you for joining us, Anthea. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Anthea Butler, who is the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And Professor Butler's latest book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine